Hi guys. I'm back to tell you about another amazing sticker shop, Snarky and Sage. Owner Kate grew up during the trifecta of the true crime era with John Benet Ramsey, OJ Simpson, and the Bill Clinton Monica Lewinsky scandal. Needless to say, her fascination with true crime was inevitable. True crime isn't exactly a conversation starter at parties, so Kate is truly happy she's found her crime community through her shop and her Instagram. Her shop started from a shift in income generating due to the pandemic, as I'm sure a lot of you can relate to or know someone who can relate. Snarky and Sage allows Kate to express her creative side and get back to her true crime roots. Now she spends her days drawing and designing stickers, binging true crime stories, and petting her dog, which is always a huge bonus. And through her shop, she's been able to connect with a ton of other people who share her interest in true crime and other creepy things. And just in case stickers aren't your thing, Snarky and Sage also has mugs, bookmarks, t-shirts, and tote bags. Oh, and she also just released a murder map sticker that I had to order immediately because it is too cute. You can find Snarky and Sage on Etsy by searching for the shop name, but we'll also link the shop in our show notes for this episode. And Kate was kind enough to give our listeners a special code for 10% off their order. Just use promo code CRIMECAT10 at checkout. Hi guys, Winston and I have another shop to recommend. Kimberly is the owner of Spooky Babe Stickers. Spooky Babe is a passion project of Kimberly's and she has so many designs to choose from. You can purchase regular vinyl stickers, holograph stickers, sticker packs, and even planner stickers. I've ordered several different true crime stickers from Spooky Babe for both myself and our Patreon supporters. I just ordered a ton of stickers because she dropped a bunch of new designs and I needed all of them, of course. Head over to Etsy and search for Spooky Babe stickers. We'll also link her shop and her Instagram in our show notes. I'm Edward October, and I'm here at the October Pod Ranch in the Great Smoky Mountains. Almost every night here, there's a ghost story party around the campfire. In my family, we believe that scary stories are best told around a roaring fire with a bottle of wine. That's why bold individualists everywhere choose October Pod for their retro horror thrills. Our stories are so good because they're told with such care, understated, moody, and above all, chilling. Why don't you join us? For retro horror of impeccable taste, choose October Pod. Find us on YouTube or at OctoberPodVHS.com. OctoberPod. Retro horror for bold individualists. Welcome to True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise. Every other week, I'll share a true crime case from my hometown, the Pacific Northwest. 
and sometimes my cat Winston joins me. This podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Winston and I are so excited to bring you this special episode. We've partnered with the amazing and talented Paige from Reverie True Crime. Paige chose today's case for us, which is Conrad Roy and Michelle Carter. But before we get started, I want to give Paige the chance to tell all of our listeners where they can find her show. Oh, thank you. Thank you and Winston for letting me come on and collab with y'all. I've always wanted to. I'm such a huge fan of you and Winston. So thank you so much. (laughs) Aw, thank you. Yeah, and my podcast is Reverie True Crime, and Twitter is Reverie Crime Pod, and everywhere else is Reverie True Crime. You know, it's funny, I was just having a conversation earlier with a couple other people about the cutoff of Twitter and how it cuts everyone's names <sighs> off. Yes, <laughs> yes, that I hate that. It's so frustrating, like, everywhere else you can find me by this name. But on Twitter, I have to be some kind of weird handle. Yes, it's so crazy. (laughs) When do you release your new episodes for any of my listeners who are interested? Um, Every Monday. And sometimes there are bonus episodes on Thursdays. So, yes, you can find uh, Reverie True Crime wherever you can find True Crime Cat Lawyer. We're all out there on the different podcast apps. So again, Winston and I want to thank Paige so much. She has been an amazing supporter and promoter of our show, and we adore her. And we're so happy that she's doing this collaboration episode Uh, with us. Not as happy as me, I promise. (laughs) I think what I like about your case is it's super interesting from both a factual standpoint, but also from a legal standpoint. And so it's like the perfect collaboration for the two of us yeah for sure it's it for me it's like okay is it morally just really messed up or you know I can't wait to get into the legal side of it of what makes her guilty or not guilty of uh this case today (laughs) yeah so I'm also super excited to get into it and with that I will let you take it away Paige okay So Conrad Henry Roy III was born on September 12th, 1995 in Mattapoisett, Massachusetts. I'm so sorry if I mispronounce that, but um, I would love to help you, but (laughs) that would probably be my best guess too. (laughs) So Conrad was described as having social anxiety around everyone at school. The men in his family, like his dad, grandfather, and uncle, They ran a family salvage company, and it's called Tucker Roy Marine Towing and Salvage uh, Incorporated, and Conrad worked alongside them. Michelle Carter was born on August 11th, 1996 in Massachusetts to Gail and David Carter. When Michelle was eight or nine, she unfortunately had an eating disorder, and she may have dealt with that in an unhealthy way by self-harming. 
At 14 years old, she was put on psych meds and she was going to McLean Hospital in Belmont for counseling. And as far as school, she attended King Philip Regional High School, Rentham. In 2012, Conrad had made a trip to Florida to see some relatives, and coincidentally, Michelle was there visiting family too, and they happened to run into each other while they were in Florida. But after that, over the next two years, they would only see each other in person a few more times. They even only lived about 30 to 40 minutes away from each other in Massachusetts, but instead of seeing each other in person, they would text and send emails back and forth all the time. So I don't know if it was his social anxiety that he wouldn't meet up with her or what the deal was, but they just didn't see each other. Yeah, I think that's kind of the weirdest part of this case to me at least as far as their relationship goes, because it wasn't like they were across country from each other. Exactly. I mean, I think they were both at the age where they could drive, right? Yeah, yeah, they were, they were, you know, and this was 2012. So yeah, they were in high school. They could have, you know, they could have seen each other. And I just don't, I don't get why unless, you know, with her mental problems and his, I don't know. Yeah, It definitely could be that social anxiety piece. It's just, it is very, it's very non-traditional for a lot of us. (laughs) For sure. In October of 2012, the court documents state that Conrad had been physically abused by his father and that his grandfather would verbally abuse him. So with all of that really getting to him and then his parents divorcing, Conrad got extremely depressed and he did attempt to complete suicide. After Michelle found out that he was going through all this and tried to take his own life, she had been talking to him, seemingly trying to help him at first and steer his mind into a better place. Well, two years go by and in the spring of 2014, Right before Conrad turned 18, he had gone to three months of night classes at the Northeast Maritime Institute and got his captain's license, which meant he was now a professional mariner. He was so smart, and he was making great grades in school, and he was playing baseball, he rode crew, he ran track, so he was very active in school. In June of 2014, Conrad graduated from Old Rochester Regional High School on the honor roll with a 3.88 GPA. Fitchburg State University had accepted Conrad and he was going to study business, but he decided not to. Conrad was talking to Michelle a lot about the struggles that he was having mentally And at first, Michelle told Conrad that he should get professional help for his mental illness. In early June of 2014, Michelle was planning to go to McLean Hospital for one of her treatments for her eating disorder. And she even asked Conrad to come with her. And she was like, you know, there's professionals there that could help you with this depression and we could support each other in doing this. But he ended up not doing it, and the tone of their communications from this point really changed. Conrad continued researching suicide methods, 
and sharing his findings with Michelle and things really started to get dark. Um, Michelle helped plan how, when, where all of this would go down. I have a question. So I know that she was like actively involved in, like you said, planning, preparing, all that. Did she ever actually have like a suicide pact with him? Conrad did text her and say that they should be like Romeo and Juliet. And he was like making sure she knew what that meant. You know, he was like, this means we're both going to commit suicide. I don't know whether she said okay or really where that went. So. But in his mind, like he was at least kind of yeah trying that, to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's definitely what he wanted. That's so sad. It's a really sad uh, place in your mind to be. Yeah. And I I feel like there's, I've I've never had those kinds of thoughts or experiences, but if I were to have those kinds of, you know, periods of my life, I would feel better a little bit if I knew that somebody else was going to do it with me, like as terrible as that sounds. Yeah. Totally. There's something, Yeah. yeah, there's something comforting in somebody else also doing it yeah and the thing is when you're in such a dark state of mind and let's just say I'm talking to someone I really care about I love this person and if they told me you just need to end it and go jump off a bridge nobody's gonna care you know I'll take care of your parents all this if you're in a really really dark state of mind that that would be somebody's last straw like this person I love is telling me to just do it so why not so leading up to what would tragically happen Conrad was seeing a cognitive behavioral therapist he had been going to various counselors and therapists for his social anxiety and depression, but he was just struggling so bad. In late May or early June, Conrad was still 17, taking way too many pills. And thankfully, he was rushed to the hospital and he was saved. So Conrad had also been prescribed the antidepressant Celexa, which he was on for quite some time. With most antidepressants, they have the potential to have side effects of, you know, you'll think about suicide and you'll have those kind of behaviors. The court records go into Conrad's mental health. It says between October 2012 and July 2014, Conrad attempted suicide several times by various means, including overdosing on the -the over-the-counter medication, drowning, water poisoning, and suffocation. None of these attempts succeeded as he abandoned each attempt or sought rescue. At this point, Conrad was really battling with his depression, and we see a lot of that in the text messages between him and Michelle, even up to the minute of this tragic incident. So Conrad had been researching suicide methods and sharing those findings with Michelle. That's when she started helping him plan. She also downplayed his fears about how his suicide would affect his family because he got really scared about that and was worrying about his parents. And she repeatedly chastised him for his indecision and his delay, um, texting, for example, that, quote, 
you better not be bullshitting me and saying you're going to do this and then purposely get caught. And she made him promise to kill himself. That's morally horrible, but I can't wait to find out how this legally comes into play. Yeah, I that piece really frustrates me because I think so many people, when they've made the choice to complete suicide, even if they're going to go through with it, I would speculate that the vast majority of people do still care about how this is going to affect their family. Yeah. And oftentimes they sort of plan in a way that is the least likely to traumatize their family. I mean, it's obviously going to traumatize their family regardless, but like they don't do it in a place where they're necessarily going to be found right away. Or, you know, they do something that's protecting their family in their own way so for her to minimize that and make that seem like oh you're not serious because you're worried about what this is going to do to your family I think Mm -hmm. that's a perfectly normal thing to think about yeah for sure when you're like planning something like that and I mean it's rude to chastise someone anyways what you should be doing if you're in that position is getting them help you know, or talking them down, not talking them further over the ledge. Yeah. And, and here's kind of what I think just from pure opinion or speculation, I get the feeling that she would just maybe get annoyed at him for constantly talking about suicide. And if you're going to, you know, get annoyed at someone for their depression or you know their suicidal thoughts and it gets to the point where it's on your nerves just stop talking to that person the way to do it is not turn around and try to force them into it and quote unquote get rid of the problem it's just kind of given that vibe like okay I'm so annoyed with this just go ahead and do it I've heard about this forever just do it yeah and Like you said, that's just, that's really icky. Like that's Mm -hmm. very gross. Yeah. You know, she could have just backed away and never answered another text message. That's what kills me. Especially because they only saw each other. I think I read like maybe four times after they first met. It's like you never had to see him in person to break up with him. Exactly. I, yeah, I think it's terrible to break up over text, but people do it all the time. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's become like a new, th- it's really kind of more normalized now because everybody's always on their phone. But like, even for them, like you said, they never saw each other. So for her to just kind of cut him off would have been better than what she did, because I feel like maybe if he would have attempted when she cut him off, he had always abandoned the idea before and got scared. Just like we'll see in this situation, he got kind of scared and I don't think he would have gone through with it. Yeah, I definitely agree. So Conrad had pretty much decided that he was going to poison himself inside of his truck. And so they started texting on July 7th around 11 at night. Michelle says, well, there's more ways to make CO. Google ways to make it. Conrad says, oh my God. And she said, what? He says, portable generator. That's it. And Michelle says, that makes CO? And he said, yeah, it's an internal combustion engine. And Michelle says, do you have one of those? 
Conrad said, there's one at work. So similarly, on July 11th at five in the afternoon, Michelle sent Conrad the following text message saying, well, in my opinion, I think you should do the generator because I don't know much about the pump and with a generator, you cannot fail. The judge found that Michelle's actions from June 30th to July 12th constituted wanton in serious disregard of the victim's well-being, but that this behavior did not cause his death. In the days leading up to Conrad's death, he continued planning his suicide, including um, securing a water pump that he would use to generate carbon monoxide inside of his closed truck. And during the evening of July 11th and the morning of July 12th, Conrad and Michelle exchanged these text messages. Conrad said, I have a bad feeling that this is going to create a lot of depression between my parents and my sisters. Michelle said, I think your parents know you're in a really bad place. I'm not saying they want you to do it, but I honestly feel like they accept it. They know there's nothing they can do. They've tried helping you. Everyone's tried. But there's a point that comes where there isn't anything anyone can do to save you, not even yourself. And you've hit that point. And I think your parents know you've hit that point. You said your mom saw a suicide thing on your computer and she didn't say anything. I think she knows it's on your mind and she's prepared for it. Everyone will be sad for a while, but they'll get over it and move on. They won't be in depression. I won't let that happen. They know how sad you are, and they know that you're doing this to be happy, and I think they will understand and accept it. They'll always carry you in their hearts. And Conrad says, I don't want to hurt anyone in the process, though. I mean, when they open the door, all the carbon monoxide is going to come out, and they can't see it or smell it, whoever opens the door. Michelle says, they will see the generator and know that you died of CO. And he said, I don't know, I'm freaking out again. And she says, I thought you wanted to do this. The time is right and you're ready. You just need to do it. You can't keep living this way. You just need to do it like you did it last time and not think about it and just do it, babe. You can't keep doing this every day. So July 12th is the day that Conrad takes his life, and around 4.25 that morning, he and Michelle exchanged more text, and she said, so I guess you aren't going to do it then, all that for nothing. I'm just confused, like you were so ready and determined, and Conrad said, I'm going to eventually. I really don't know what I'm waiting for, but I have everything lined up. Michelle says, no, you're not, Conrad. Last night was it. You keep pushing it off and you say you'll do it, but you never do. It's always going to be that way if you don't take action. And she goes on to say, you're just making it harder on yourself by pushing it off. You just have to do it. Do you want to do it right now? And he says, is it too late? I don't know. It's already light outside. I'm going to go back to sleep. Love you. I'll text you tomorrow. Then Michelle says, no, it's probably the best time now because everybody's sleeping. Just go somewhere in your truck and no one's really out right now because it's an awkward time. If you don't do it now, you're never going to do it. And you can say you'll do it tomorrow, but you probably won't. 
other text messages that were shown that Michelle had sent egging Conrad on from around July the 4th to the 12th were things like, you're going to have to prove me wrong because I just don't think you really want this. You just keep pushing it off to another night and say you'll do it, but you never do. See, that's what I mean. You keep pushing it off. You just said you were going to do it tonight, and now you're saying eventually. But I bet you're going to be like, oh, it didn't work because I didn't tape the tube right or something like that. I bet you're going to say an excuse like that. Do you have a generator? And he laughs and he says, not yet. And she said, these are all caps too. Like she is pissed. And she's like, well, when are you getting it? You better not be bullshitting me and saying you're going to do this and then purposely get caught. So the day that it happens on the 12th, she texted him and said, you just need to do it, Conrad, or I'm going to get you help. You can't keep doing this every day. And Conrad says, okay, I'm going to do it today. Michelle said, do you promise? And Conrad said, I promise, babe. I have to now. And she says, like, right now? And he said, where do I go, sad face? She said, well, you can't break a promise and just go in a quiet parking lot or something. July 12th, Conrad drove his truck to a local store's parking lot and he started the pump. And while the pump was operating, filling the truck with carbon monoxide, Michelle and Conrad were in contact by cell phone. Um, Cell phone records showed that one call of over 40 minutes had been placed by Conrad to Michelle and a second call of about the same time length by Michelle to Conrad. So they were calling each other back and forth. And during the time when police believed that Conrad was in his truck committing suicide, he was on the phone with her freaking out. There's no record of what they were talking about during these phone calls, but it's assumed, and I think she may have even said in court, like, he got out of the truck, called me, and she basically said, get back in. And this is, you know, where things get complicated for a lot of people, because I know some people think that this is cut and dry, like she's guilty of murder, and even though I, I totally believe it's morally wrong, I do have some hot takes about it because she wasn't there like holding a gun to his head. It was, it's totally your decision, what you do to yourself and your body. At least that's how I've looked at this kind of the whole time without really looking into the legal part of it. And I just think nobody can force you to do something, but I guess if you are in a, like I was talking about, like in a dark place, what somebody says really could, you know, affect you. And I know that's what pretty much happened here, but how does that legally, you know, tie in together, you know, immoral acts and legal acts, how they combine? Conrad did poison the inside of his truck with carbon monoxide, and that's when he started freaking out having second thoughts and he did hop out of the truck he was on the phone with michelle and she tells him to get back in 
Um, Michelle, however, sent a text to a friend at eight o'clock that night. This was shortly after the second call with Conrad. And she tells her friend, he just called me and there was a loud noise like a motor and I heard moaning like someone was in pain and he wouldn't answer when I said his name. I stayed on the phone for like 20 minutes and that's all I heard. At 825, she again texted that same friend and she said, I think he just killed himself. She sent a similar text to another friend around 930 that night and she said, he called me and I heard like muffled sounds and some type of motor running. And it was like that for about 20 minutes and he wouldn't answer. I think he killed himself. So she's covering her tracks in a way like, oh, I don't know what's going on. I think he may have killed himself. Like, I'm not sure. And um, September 15th, 2014, she texted the first friend again saying in part, I failed Conrad. I wasn't supposed to let that happen. And now I'm realizing I failed him. His death is my fault. Like, honestly, I could have stopped him. I was on the phone with him and he got out of the car because it was working and he got scared. And I fucking told him to get back in because I knew he would do it all over again the next day. And I couldn't have him live the way he was living anymore. I couldn't do it. I wouldn't let him. At age 17, Michelle was charged with involuntary manslaughter as a youthful offender for the suicide of Conrad, who was 18 years old when he took his life. They had a non-jury trial in Massachusetts. And do you want to go into the, the trial and the, the legal parts of it? This is really interesting to me. Thank you, Paige, for getting us up to the trial. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like I rambled a little bit, but... No, it's just, it's to me, it's like so crazy how we got here. Like just this little piece of Conrad's life yeah. that, you know, got us to this point. So you obviously went over all the text messages, the phone calls. Those are super important evidence that's going to be at the trial. I do want to just kind of take it back just a little bit because I want to kind of explain how we even got to the trial. Yeah. So like you had mentioned, um, Conrad committed suicide in July of 2014. And over the next six to seven months, investigators and prosecutors were kind of working behind the scenes to put together a case against Michelle Carter. And I think a lot of that stemmed from the cell phone and text message records and seeing the kinds of things that she was saying to him. Obviously, like you said, yeah. we don't know what was actually said on the phone, but looking at her text messages, I can imagine the huh. the kind of things that she was saying. Right. And probably in a really mean way, too, because she seemed so mean. Exactly. And I think a phone call when you can hear somebody's tone is definitely way different than, but even like you mentioned, all caps to me yeah. is like, I'm like rage texting. <laughs> yes. Like that's, I think for most people, that's an indication like somebody is really pissed. Just that tone when you're, when you're talking to somebody that's in that space in their lives, it's, it's definitely icky. Like we talked about before, like yeah. morally definitely wrong. I don't think that we should be talking to people who are in that space in that way, mm -mm. but is she guilty of involuntary manslaughter? If you're confused, <laughs> let me explain because, you know, at, 
there's no dispute that Conrad took his own life. What we're looking at is the text messages and phone calls leading up to that day and Michelle Carter's encouragement to Conrad leading to Conrad's death. So in February of 2015, a grand jury indicted Carter for involuntary manslaughter. Every state has its own definition of manslaughter, homicide, murder, first degree, all of that. So in Massachusetts, involuntary manslaughter is the unlawful homicide unintentionally caused by an act which constitutes a disregard of probable harmful consequences to another that amounts to wanton or reckless conduct. And just for everyone's reference, wanton (laughs) simply means deliberate or unprovoked. So I think if we're using kind of those buzzwords, deliberate, unprovoked, Mm. and reckless, I think that's what we're really focusing on for this involuntary manslaughter. So before we even got things rolling, Michelle Carter's defense team filed a motion to dismiss the indictment because essentially their argument is that there was no physical act and words alone, they're not enough to charge someone with manslaughter. As you mentioned, she's in juvenile court um, because she's 17 at the time. So the judge denied the defense's motion and her attorneys, of course, appealed and the appeal was heard by the Massachusetts Supreme Court. And so, again, this is all before the trial even happens. This is like, are we even going to have a trial? The Supreme Court of Massachusetts, they rejected her appeal and said that there there was probable cause for the indictment because they felt it was possible for a person to verbally encourage another person to commit suicide. And that verbal encouragement could constitute wanton and reckless conduct. I'm going to ask you this, you know, we see all the time on social media how crazy mean people are and with the trolling and telling people to kill themselves, if someone kills themselves due to somebody on the internet bullying them, is that kind of the same thing or does that get brushed off in some cases? It's a great question. I'm going to touch on it a little bit later. Okay, cool. But the Supreme Court, when just talking about the indictment, they say that in this case, the probable cause was the coercive quality of her verbal conduct. So I think there's a couple things. I think first, there's this coercive nature that she's, I mean, like we talked about this sort of berating him. And Mm. if you don't do it now, you're never going to do it. You always say that you're going to do it and you don't like this sort of manipulation tactic and then there's also the layer of the relationship between the two of them you know they're in a dating relationship they're so they're presumably close you know if they've been together for two years so there's that issue as well I don't know that they ever like fully came out and said it but there's something to be said about having a close relationship with someone like that and the ability that you can sort of manipulate that person. Yeah, the the power that you kind of have, both of you in a relationship, anything that somebody says, you kind of believe it. If you, if you love them and you trust them, then it's like, it's that much easier to talk someone into doing something. Right. And I think we, I mean, we see that in so many true crime cases, you know, like where people are doing murder for hire or you know something like that it's it's so easy to talk to someone like that when you are in that position I don't want to say of power because it's not always the case yeah 
you're in that position where you trust that person and you love that person. And I think most of the time we want to believe that people we love and care about have our best interests at heart Mm -hmm. and they're not going to tell us something wrong. Right. They're not going to lie to us, you know. I think that aspect is what the court focused on because because of that relationship and because of the things that she was saying and the way she was saying them, she was able to overcome his own willpower. It's almost like she was able to feed into the little depression voice that was Mm -hmm. already in his head and she was able to tap into that to where that was able to like take him over. I think even that, like we see a lot of times in like cults or, mm. you know, other brainwashing Munchausen's like that right. kind of thing. The mind is manipulative, you know, like you can yeah. overpower someone's mind to where they're not in control of it. But that's definitely a very like squishy gray area. Yeah. yeah. Essentially, but for what Carter was saying to him, you know, this the admonishments, the pressure, the instructions that she gave him to get back in the truck. He wouldn't have gotten back in that truck and committed suicide if it weren't for her. I believe that due to, you know, abandoning all of his other plans, he kind of gets freaked out when he thinks about his parents. That was huge for him. And I don't think he really wanted to. Yeah. So after the Supreme Court says there's probable cause for the indictment, we can start the trial of Michelle Carter. She did waive her right to a jury trial and she decided to proceed with a bench trial instead, which meant that her case would be heard and decided by a single judge. I think in my mind, this was probably the best move. I think there's a real legal esoteric kind of argument going on here that I think it's too emotional. Yeah, a jury would be super emotionally charged for sure. Yeah, I think this is the kind of case where you want the judge to be the legal fact finder. He's he or she is just applying the law to the facts. They're, you know, they know what the standard is, you know, all of that. Obviously judges are still human and there is still, you know, emotion there, but you're sort of taking away the kind of sensationalism by giving it to a judge instead of a jury. As we kind of talked about, the prosecution's case really focused on the text messages and the phone calls. According to the prosecution, Michelle really preyed on the vulnerable emotional and mental state that Conrad was in on July 12th. And as we kind of talked about, she encouraged him to commit suicide and she basically scolded him when he kind of like wavered about actually going through with his plan. Yeah. And so we did talk about, you know, the texts that she also sent to her friends, which I think are important as well. The prosecution really focused on the instruction of getting him back into the truck, but also not getting him help, not letting his family know what was going on, just other things that she could have done versus telling him to get back in the truck. They also kind of highlighted the fact, too, that despite what she said to her friends later on in the text message, there was evidence that she was on the phone with him when he died. I remember hearing that, them saying like she heard him take his last gasp. If that doesn't haunt you for the rest of your life, that is sad. I think back to, you know, people I've lost in my life and kind of being there at their last moments and just how traumatic that was for me. 
to the point where like I wouldn't be in the room when that happened. Like I knew it was coming and I wouldn't be there because I don't want that to be my last memory. Yeah. But it's like she want. it's kind of like she wanted to hear that to know he was gone. And that is so sick. It is. It's like, I need to hear like confirmation that he actually went through with this so that I can stop going back and forth with him, Mm -hmm. which is just like, it just like blows my mind because I like, I have never met Conrad. Like I never knew anything about him, but it breaks my heart that like, this is the person that he's with. And like, this is what she's done to him. Like if this was my child. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. That just hit me in another way to think about his parents. I always thought about it in the way that like, oh, that is so heartbreaking that he was with someone like that. But then you think about it from a parent's perspective, and I'm sure they wanted to just beat her ass, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I'm. we will we'll get into it more. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, you know, when the defense got to proceed with their case, they filed a motion for a directed verdict, which essentially means that they think the prosecution didn't establish their burden of proving that Michelle was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Because they felt that way, they wanted the judge to issue a verdict in their favor. The judge denied that motion, and they proceeded with their defense case. So I understand that everyone is entitled to a defense. There are some things that you're going to have to present that are very icky um, and feel gross. I think that they focused a little too heavily on the fact that Conrad committed suicide. Again, like I said earlier, that was never in dispute. You know, everybody agreed that he committed suicide. It was the why, almost a little bit of how, you know, obviously he- how it got to that point. Right. So basically they said, you know, Conrad committed suicide. And so- she's not guilty of involuntary manslaughter because he took his own life, which if you're looking at it very black and white, sure. I did not know this before I started researching this. So they actually presented evidence that Michelle had recently changed her antidepressant medications. And that's why she was aggressive with Conrad Uh, on the night he took his own life. Yeah. That makes things so complicated when you have basically two mentally ill people and now she switched medications that have possibly if that is true you know if we believe it's true which you know I know it can happen but let's just say this medicine did change her personality and made her meaner the chemicals in your brain aren't working with the medicine oh that is just it's kind of oh man that is kind of complicated It is, but I think at the same time, like you can't really go back to that point and say what she was like at that time, unless you are literally testing her and like seeing her at that time. If you think about any crime, all we really care about is that specific moment that that crime happened. Do you have the intent? Did you, you know, have the weapon? All of that, like, we only care about the time that that crime was committed. If you yeah. were, you know, legally sane before, but then you were legally insane at the time. Right. And then legally sane afterwards, like none of that matters. Only the point that like the crime actually happened. 
it's definitely certainly possible, you know, when you change medications like that, especially like mood stabilizers and Uh antidepressants and everything. But it also is coming at a time where it seems a little bit convenient Mm, that that we're offering this. Because anybody can say that, but then it has to be something you can prove. And unless you've got a doctor that was seeing you at the time and noticed something different in you, if, you know, I don't know if she had a doctor come testify for her or anything like that, but if no doctor or your parents can't like confirm, yeah, she was out of control during this time, then it's just her word. And that's kind of hard to go by. Yeah, so they did have a psychiatrist testify, but it wasn't clear to me whether it was her actual psychiatrist or it was somebody that they hired. Yeah. I still have, you know, doubts about this. Despite what you laid out for us earlier, the defense tried to argue that Conrad made the choice and took the steps to plan out his suicide which the defense argued was his idea. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that there's not some truth to that because there definitely is, but you mentioned earlier the things that she was doing to also assist in his planning Mm. and his preparing. It's it's, It's so hard because you can say it was his idea, but if he was just spouting off something and then she ran with it and said, okay, this is how you should do it. This is when he might've moved on to another conversation. Had you not just sat there and helped him plan everything. I'm actually so glad we're talking about this now because I have like a thought that just popped into my brain. Oh, what's up? It's (laughs) It's so crazy to me that if you took his suicide out of this and they were planning a robbery or they were planning a murder or something like that, this is literally conspiracy. I didn't. Okay. I would have never thought of that. That is like I said, it just literally came into my brain right now. That is so true. It is so hard because a suicide is, is so different. Just in terms of like, you know, what the actual like definition of a suicide is and like what it actually is. But if you take that piece out of it, it's, it boggles my mind. Like it just, yeah. it doesn't seem like there's enough of his own free will and his own yeah. decision making. Yeah, for sure. She could have told him to do anything that day. And I feel like he would have done it. Like if she would have said, if you go out and kill so-and-so, that'll make you feel so much better. You know, the same thing she said, but, you know, put it in another situation. Like you said, robbery or murder. She could have talked him into anything at that point because he was just so easy to manipulate in that in that mindset that he was in. Being what it Man, is. That that just blew my mind. I know I blew my own mind. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, I I hadn't thought about about it till this very moment. You know, all of our sort of legal theories aside her attorney really I don't I don't want to say cemented but really like hit on the point that Conrad Roy was a troubled young man and he was intent on committing suicide long before he met Michelle Carter which again I'm not saying that there's not some truth to that because you know we have evidence of the times he's attempted suicide in the past but I will get into it (laughs) yeah yeah The trial judge ultimately found Michelle Carter guilty of involuntary manslaughter. He believed that 
the prosecution had proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Carter's actions from June 30th to July 12th, which were her text messages, constituted wanton and reckless conduct that was in serious disregard for Conrad's well-being. And kind of touching on what I had just briefly mentioned before, the judge explained that it didn't matter that Conrad had attempted suicide in the past. And I think that's important because yes, he has all of these suicide attempts in the past, but if you go back and look at all of them, I mean, I think the thing that we're missing is Michelle Carter. When he, you know, makes these other attempts, there's something in him that, like you said, just kind of, no, I can't actually do this. I, I have to stop. And we still see this on July 12th, but now we have Michelle Carter. Mm, that is so true. Without her, this probably would not have happened. Right. And this, so this is kind of the, the but for causation piece. That's kind of where the judge focuses on, you know, but for Carter telling him to get back in the truck, he probably wouldn't have gotten back in the truck. You know, he had made the decision himself to get out of the truck. He, you know, was done. He wasn't going to go through with it just like he had in the past, you know, he changed his mind, but she said, get back in the truck that to the judge was this reckless disregard because this like she knew that there was going to be substantial harm from her instruction of telling him to do this i think she whether she wants to admit it or not i think she knew how much power she had over him and she knew that he would get back in the truck if she told him to just her texting those people and saying, oh, I think this happened. Oh, I think this happened. Knowing good and well, she knew everything, but she wanted to act like, oh, I just think this may have happened. I'm not sure. So if like, if anybody finds him, like I didn't have anything to do with it kind of I I don't know what happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the judge relied on a particular case in Massachusetts Commonwealth versus Bowen. Um, And I'm going to discuss that a little more in a bit. Um, But essentially, it's a case that held when a person's actions create a life-threatening risk to another person, there's a duty to take reasonable steps to alleviate the risk. The reckless failure to fulfill this duty can result in a charge of manslaughter. Carter never told Conrad to get out of the truck. She never told his mom or his sister what was going on, what he was doing. Simply put, she did nothing to help him. So she was sentenced to 15 months in prison, which I think for a juvenile involuntary manslaughter is probably on par. I think you can usually see anywhere between like 12 and 24 months, depending on the circumstances. You know, yeah, I wasn't sure how much time she got. So that's interesting to me that I actually would have thought she would get a few years. Yeah. So I, I'm not quite sure how Massachusetts does it, if they have like sentencing guidelines or anything like that. But being a first time offender, being a juvenile, it, it sort of tracks for me. I think the other, I don't want to say issue, but the other sort of factor that's behind the scenes is this case was essentially the first of its kind in Massachusetts. And so this is what we call a case of first impression in the legal field. So it's a case that's never really been decided before. And so of course her defense attorneys appealed and appealed and appealed, and they were ready to take it all the way to the Supreme court, which 
the U.S. Supreme Court, which they did, and I'll get to that, but they first had to start in Massachusetts. So they go back to the Massachusetts Supreme Court, who already, you know, okayed the indictment. So now they're trying to focus on the conviction piece. And was that um, proper? So the first thing to note is we do have a different standard this time. For the indictment, it was probable cause. And for the conviction, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. So it is a higher burden for the state because they had found probable cause for the indictment. That doesn't equal beyond a reasonable doubt for the conviction. So they essentially kind of look at it anew, you know. Yeah. But what they were really focusing on is whether there was sufficient evidence to support the finding of the judge that Carter committed involuntary manslaughter beyond a reasonable doubt. And the second thing they were looking at is, again, you know, this is the second time she's coming in front of the Massachusetts Supreme Court. So they wanted to see, do the other legal issues that her attorney is re-raising on appeal require them to set aside her conviction? They weren't really decided in the first um, appeal because it was really focusing on the indictment itself. So he basically, you know, re-raised those issues because they were never decided. So now they actually can decide those issues if they want. So they ultimately affirmed Michelle Carter's conviction. They agreed with the trial judge that Conrad was the cause of his own suicidal actions up until the point when he got out of his truck. So mm-hmm. everything up until him making the choice to get out of the truck, that was all him. He, you know, set up the generator, like you mentioned, yeah. he's, he's in the truck. Those are all him. But when he gets out of the truck, that's his choice. And like we've kind of um, harped on, that is really consistent with his past behavior. He will get everything up to the point. He'll sort of, I don't want to say dip his toes in, but he'll sort of kind of like ease into an attempt and then he'll stop. You know, he gets scared or he doesn't want to actually go through with it or he thinks about his family or whatever it is. He doesn't complete it. He makes the choice to abandon it and stop. Completely typical of his past behavior And I think we see that very natural, I think, too, for people to have that apprehension, you know, abandon their plans. Once he gets out of the truck, she, Michelle Carter, starts badgering him about getting back in the truck. They really focused on the fact that, you know, Michelle was his girlfriend and she was his closest confidant. And I think that's absolutely true. You know, I, you know, if their relationship was primarily through text, I mean, you can send so many texts in a day (laughs) to somebody, you know? So even just given like all the text messages you read in that like span of time. Yeah. It seemed like so much, but you know, they texted even more than that. So there's so much, you know, we don't even probably know that they said. Right. And so just that like constant communication. And I mean, you have to be close to somebody to tell them about these deep, dark things that you're talking about for most people. Yeah. You know, most people, if they're thinking about taking their own lives, they're not just going to go like tell everybody in the world, like write a big old sign and like, you know, so true. it's such, that's part of the issue with suicide is that it is such a private thing. And so for her to know about these things and use that against him is what the court focused on. You know, she had 
a way of sort of controlling him, you know, and instead of using whatever hold she had on him to say, you know, stay out of the truck or, you know, go for a walk you know, get some fresh air because he would have done all this. anything she said. Oh, yeah. Man. But she doesn't. I mean, even when she says, get back in the truck, she still could have said, no, this is scary. Like, this is scaring me. I don't like this. Get back out of the truck. Yeah. Like we talked about earlier, she could have called his mom or called his sister. Like she could have done so many things and she didn't. So they firm the finding that there is sufficient evidence to prove that she's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt of involuntary manslaughter. So then they move to the other arguments that her attorney has raised. And the the most notable one is the First Amendment kind of free speech argument. Mm. So as we all know, the First Amendment protects our freedom of speech, uh, but that right isn't absolute. So there are definitely limitations. Their focus was on the text messages and arguing that the conviction sort of limited on her free speech to kind of say whatever she wanted to him. I have another sort of um, legal explanation of this later on, so I'll save it then. Okay. But <laughs> the court disagreed with that argument that they made. One of the the focuses was on the actual like Massachusetts law itself. There's no reference to restricting or regulating speech you know, I read to you exactly like what the law says. Yeah. And there's no mention of speech whatsoever. That's the first problem. There is no regulation on speech because of the law. The second problem is they sort of put her speech into this exception that I've never heard of until this case. <laughs> um, and it is the integral to a course of criminal conduct exception, which if your speech is integral to a course of criminal conduct, you're not protected by the constitution. So I do have more information on this later, but it basically comes from a U.S. Supreme Court case called Gibney versus Empire Storage. And if a person uses speech as an integral part of their conduct, which is in violation of a valid criminal law, that speech isn't protected by the First Amendment. Basically, the Supreme Court of Massachusetts really rejected the First Amendment arguments that they were trying to make, which I think is why that argument that her attorneys made is really what like the media clung on to, because everybody sort of just, I don't don't know how to put it, they, everybody gets all aghast and up in arms if you're trying to limit somebody's free speech. Yeah. (laughs) It's a very serious (laughs) right that we all have, that we all find very important, so Yeah, but sometimes people don't get like, okay, yes, you have free speech, but like then you have hate speech and then you have like consequences to the things you say. It's it's not just like you can just go around saying whatever you want and think that you may not get punished for that in some way if it's really bad. Right. It's like I said, it's not absolute. This is not a just black and white. You have free speech to say whatever you want. That's not accurate. Yeah. She loses her appeal at the Massachusetts Court of, or sorry, Supreme Court, and her attorneys filed a petition for a writ of certiorari to the U.S. Supreme Court. And all that fancy jargon <laughs> means is it's basically a legal pleading that sort of outlines the specific issues in the case and tells the Supreme Court why they should take a look at this case. 
So for Carter, it was about having her conviction overturned, even though her 15 months would have been over by the end of this whole process. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But I think for her defense attorneys, her case was the perfect opportunity for them to garner exposure and kind of make a name for themselves. Yeah. Like, look what I did. Yeah. So, you know, they argued that her conviction was unprecedented, that Massachusetts is the only state to have affirmed the conviction of a physically absent defendant who used another person to commit suicide with words alone. So again, really focusing on the physical aspect versus verbal. So they have two issues that they wanted the Supreme Court to look at. And the first is whether her conviction violated the free speech clause. And more specifically, did her communications constitute speech that were that was integral to criminal conduct as the Supreme Court of Massachusetts had found? And then the second one is a little more nuanced legal argument. But essentially, they said because of the way the Massachusetts Supreme Court had ruled, this was in conflict with the Minnesota Supreme Court the Illinois Supreme Court, the North Carolina Court of Appeals. And that was creating this conflict because they all come from the same districts. Oh, wow. For Court of Appeals purposes. I'm not sure what district I didn't look, but, you know, there's like the Ninth Circuit, the Eighth Circuit, yeah, all yeah. of that. And so they, those states are all in the same district. And so when you have Court of Appeals and Supreme Court cases at the state level that are all like different from each other, you're essentially going to create a conflict when they go up to a mm. district court of appeals, that kind of thing, because you have to reconcile all these different ways that they've decided cases. That I think was their better argument, at least in my mind, because that is something that the Supreme Court actually cares about is resolving those kind of conflicts. I don't think the first one was a great argument, but again, it's the more sexy, we don't want to infringe on free speech kind of thing. Yeah. The Supreme Court declined to take the case in January of 2020. I think jurisdictionally, they they really did focus on Minnesota, uh, Massachusetts, like these specific states. I think maybe if there was a broader, like we're also going to bring in California has different things and Utah and like a lot of different regions all being sort of all over the place. I think that would have sort of forced the Supreme Court's hand. But the way it is right now, it's kind of like, oh, well, maybe it's just this region that needs to get their shit together. <laughs> Yeah. So we yeah. don't really have to do anything just yet. Plus, I mean, I just remember this from law school, you know, the Supreme Court decides their own docket. And so they can take whatever cases or reject whatever cases they feel like. Um, so maybe it just wasn't sexy enough to them, you know, Yeah. right. It, at the end of the day, like they have every right to, you know, take what cases or reject whatever cases they want. So um, then after they declined to take the case, Michelle is released from prison on January 23rd of 2020 after serving only 11 months of her 15-month sentence. Wow. I guess, you know, <laughs> when death is involved and you see people get just like a couple of months and it's not like a couple of years, even though maybe the murder wasn't caused by their own hand physically, it's still shocking to me when people don't get a lot of time for causing a death. Yeah. And I, well, let me tell you about some of the other cases I found, because I think as I go through these cases, it will definitely 
be a little bit more kind of clear why the judge came to this decision. Okay. The first kind of area that I have for the law piece is <laughs> kind of this, even this is sort of a tricky thing. So are we looking at assisted suicide laws? Are they facilitated suicides? Are they encouraged suicides? Like those are three different things. So do we need to have three different types of law or like is there a way we can sort of encompass them all together as sort of like a broader this kind of suicide rather than you know just a straight suicide not all states even have any kind of suicide laws like this so that's part of the problem in carter's case is that they didn't have in massachusetts an assisted suicide law which i think would have made it a little bit easier to sort of oh yeah get at a lot of assisted suicide cases have been prosecuted because of the physical presence of the person being there at the time of the suicide. Obviously, that is not the same for yeah. Michelle Carter. She was present, but not physically. Another problem we have, this is kind of what you were talking about way back when, yeah. this definition of encouraging suicide and kind of that concept. One of the things I was reading was about sort of where do we draw the line because we have bullying yeah. that's so prevalent. And I read a really interesting law review article that sort of talked about general versus specific encouragement. And I think in this case, there was definitely a lot more specific encouragement on Michelle yeah. Carter's part. Um, you know, the direction to get back in the car, like order the generator or like do this, do that. Like one of the articles that I had read, they wanted to kind of get at this concept of encouraging suicide as being its own thing because it definitely is a problem so they sort of proposed a definition of written or verbal statements intended to coax or inspire another to commit suicide however forceful the statements may be so this would encompass basically what we had in michelle carter's case where this person might not be physically you know gun to your like holding the gun to your head right but the statements that they're making they verbally are right and I think it's it goes back to that breaking down the sort of notion that some people have that words can't hurt people or like words can't kill absolutely not true yeah man and I know this is a little off topic but you know I just think about kids that have taken their lives because of words Words do hurt and they do kill. And that's that's just terrifying and sad. So what this article pointed out was that bullying can definitely be part of this encouragement of suicide, but bullying itself is not the same as encouraging suicide. Oh my gosh. And so I found that really powerful. That to me sort of breaks down people's arguments, like where do we draw the line? Yeah, it's very specific. Uh, Yeah. Right. Like, so we're drawing the line at the fact, like, it's really shitty and you shouldn't say all these bullying things to people. But so like bullying itself is, is not enough. But if you're bullying and your bullying is saying like coaxing someone Mm -hmm. or, you know, creating that coercive sort of quality to it where like you're just hounding this person, you know, you should do it, kill yourself. Like, here's how you should do it. That Mm -hmm. kind of thing that is going too far. I mean, arguably 
bullying yeah. is always going too far. Right. But it's so hard to just punish words alone. Yeah. So I think that article did a really good job of sort of explaining this is the kind of speech and statements that we're looking for that are like red flags to where we should be able to punish this. Because it's like in Michelle and Conrad's case, using that power that you have over that person to get them to do something. You know, if somebody is bullying you and they've broken you down to the point, you know, where where they're going to be able to manipulate you to do whatever they say, that's when it's gone too far. And now your speech is contributing to the encouragement of that person committing suicide. There's a couple other sort of very legal arguments. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'd love to hear them. One of the ones I I kind of found interesting is this idea that she shouldn't have been convicted because she didn't have fair warning about her possible conviction. And so this comes from a 1931 U.S. Supreme Court case. So like she didn't know it was illegal what she was doing. Is that what that means? Yeah. So basically you have to have fair warning in order for a statute to criminalize certain conduct. So you have to be on reasonable notice that you can be held criminally responsible for your conduct. I think in her case, the argument is that, you know, she didn't know that her texts were going to be opening her to liability for, you know, criminal charges. Yeah. Um, I only saw that in one law review article So I'm not sure how much to really like give credit to that, but I definitely thought it was like an interesting argument. That is very interesting though, because, you know, we know murder is going to, you know, lead us to prison. We know these things, but something like that, maybe she didn't know. But at the same time, you know, you know, it's fucked up, but it's like, did she know it would lead to prison? Or did she think, you know, this was kind of a loophole and no, like, oh, I'm not going to get in trouble for this. I didn't do anything really. And so I think one of the ways, at least quite a few of the law review articles that I read, which I will definitely link in my show notes, I read so many law review articles um, because it was just fascinating. Yeah. Um, But one of them that I was reading about was the one you know, kind of talking about this encouraging suicide. And they were big advocates for um, the definition that I offered earlier, but also kind of doing a conduct-based approach. So what they were saying in their article was that Michelle's guilt wasn't just from the words that she said. Like, it wasn't just, you know, that she said, get back in the truck, or she said, you're, if you don't do it today, you're never going to do it, that kind of thing. It was the fact that She had this consistent coercive behavior, knowing that Conrad was depressed. He had a history of mental health issues and he had a close relationship with her. Yeah. It's all of these things together that get us there. And I think that that along with, you know, kind of how we defined um, encouragement before when it's not physical, that plus doing a sort of conduct-based approach is a better way of looking at it. Yeah, I agree because that, that has really opened my eyes to thinking about it in ways that I definitely didn't before doing this and talking to you and getting that 
information before I was kind of like I think she should be locked away but what exactly for because I know what she did is messed up but legally like how how does that happen so yeah I mean it's so interesting and fascinating in the most morbid way but yeah and I think one of the ways that they sort of the Massachusetts Supreme Court kind of got around the difficulties at least for now is sort of saying this is still an area where we need to do kind of a case-by-case fact-based analysis we we can't really give kind of like this bright line test of like when it's going to be this or like when it's going to be that um i think obviously michelle's case gives us some instruction about you know what we would look for Oh, yeah. And what's kind of, I don't want to say like the standard, but like this clearly is what we're trying to punish. Yeah. You know, there's something about, again, not just the words she said, but it was the way she was saying them, the way, you know, the judge at her trial focused on not just the text that she sent on the day that he died, but the text from June 30th, like two yeah. weeks before. Yeah, just on and on. Right. So it wasn't just like she's telling him on the day of, like, you Mm -hmm. need to do this. It's literally like two weeks before just hounding him. I mean, I can only imagine like what that was making him feel. Yeah, because you think about it, at least, okay, like in my point of view, it's like if you are dating someone and you trust them and you're talking to them and you love this person and they're telling you it's just best if you just go ahead and do it. I just I just feel like even if that was like your mother, your father, a cousin or anybody that you just loved and trusted and they were telling you something you're like damn they wouldn't lie to me and they wouldn't steer me wrong. So maybe this world is better off without me and it is heartbreaking it is I mean I just again I've never been in that place but I've for sure been in a dark place mentally and from the outside looking in I would hope that I would never have somebody talk to me like that yeah in my sort of darkest time yeah I mean could I can't even imagine it because that would just make you feel like nothing if you think you felt like nothing before you talk to them then when they talk to you it's like you don't even exist as it is I mean it's also like very scary to me that they were teenagers like yeah. the, a teenager I mean so I, impressionable you know, right like you're you're at that age where you know your mind is still forming and all that yeah. but the fact that like she is able to do this to him and I mean they're kids and I don't know if she's just like not thinking about the consequences of her actions or she doesn't care about the consequences of her actions suicide isn't a joke right And most people that are actually thinking about it and planning it, like they need your help. And by help, I don't mean here's how you do it. Exactly. I mean, like, let's get them a counselor. Let's get them like actual mental treat, like mental health treatment, you know, get them counseling, not, oh, go to Google and figure out what kind of generator you should get. Jesus Christ. No. (laughs) I mean... Yeah, I I really do wonder how Conrad's parents feel or, you know, felt at the time, because I can't imagine somebody basically taking away my child's life in a way that you never would have imagined. 
Yeah, I I would want to just even looking at it from like a selfish point of view, if you want to sort of look like the best girlfriend, I would want to say like, I did everything I could. I'm devastated that this happened. I tried so hard to not let this happen. That's clearly not what happened in her case, because you can go back to like all of these text messages. And like you said, it's when you as a parent are seeing those kinds of things being sent to your kid who you know is not in a good place and it's supposedly from somebody that loves them and cares about them that's just i can't that's just another level of meanness evilness i narcissism i think because i really don't think that she thought she would get in any kind of trouble for it I don't think in her mind I feel like she's so narcissistic possibly that she thought I'm not doing anything wrong yeah because it's it's like you said like when somebody commits suicide like the definition of suicide is that you're taking your own life and so you don't think like you're gonna be in trouble for that but I think when you were kind of going over some of the text messages I didn't read a lot of them just because I figured you were gonna kind of dive into them (laughs) and so I was like ready to like listen to everyone that you were talking about and I didn't realize that she had said like she'll take care of his parents that's just gross it's so hard for me because I I truly don't know what it's like to be in that space and so I completely, you know, admit that I am not speaking from being in that space, but just what I would want for someone in my family or somebody I care about who's going through this. Don't tell me you're going to take care of my family. Yeah. Like tell me that I need to be here for me to take care of my family. And because I'm important to the world and I matter and I'm valuable to somebody, you know? Yes. Like that's what I would want someone who's going through that to hear that is spot on yes and so now she's just out free like do you think someone like that can can change or what do you think that it takes for somebody to hopefully not be involved in anything like this again so I will say um his mom super pissed about the amount of time she served super pissed she's already out all of that rightfully so um I think I didn't see anything about this in what I was reading but I feel like she's somebody that's clearly gonna need counseling mental health help for the rest of her life I don't think she's somebody who can ever just sort of like recover in that sense and I mean, she clearly needs some kind of like relationship counseling, oh, you know, Jesus. like, oh God, I didn't even think about like, what if she gets in another relationship? Oh my God. No. <sighs> even just at like a friend level, like there's just something yes. on like a human level. She's got a disconnect in the way she's like interacting with people. Yeah. Like no empathy or something. It- So I think if she doesn't do all of that, like she's not going to change. I don't think that 11 months in prison is going to have any effect on her. You know, I didn't even get that far because I wanted to hear like the conclusion and everything from you. So I didn't even know she was out of prison yet. 
So I'm just, I'm just blown away that she's out there walking around freely. And I just really, really hope if anybody even thinks about coming into contact with her, that they notice red flags and be aware of her and don't get too close. That's terrifying. I don't mean to like, definitely don't want to call anybody out with mental health problems. I have those too. Like, yeah, I mean, same. human. Yeah. But if you have mental health problems, please stay away from her. Yes. That is like a recipe for disaster. <laughs> you know, I suffer with depression and anxiety, social anxiety, all of it. And that is one person I definitely would want to stay away from because I feel like she would, to this day, just tell me to go kill myself. Like, honestly. And I just don't recommend anybody that suffers in any kind of way mentally, if you're not strong enough to, you know, help yourself mentally, do not be friends with her. That's just, like you said, that's a recipe for disaster. You know, when you're in, even just, I think, looking, like you said, back at his depression, if we're not even like getting to the point where he's committing suicide, like even just him being depressed, I feel like wasn't good for him to be with her. Uh Uh-uh. No. Because it's just like driving him further into depression. This also was never really talked about explicitly, but one of the things I kind of took from some of the different articles I read and like even the court opinions, I think part of the relationship piece was looking at the actual like physicality of their relationship. The fact that they had really only seen each other like five times in the span of two years. Like, again, I don't know how many text messages they were sending, but I have to think it's a significant amount because you're not seeing this person on a regular basis. So you're texting them, you know, like I, I'm a child of the the cell phone era, like texting (laughs) is my best friend. Um, And so when I can't see people, because it's not always convenient to call people and like, especially my my generation, like hates being on the phone. Oh yeah. Oh (laughs) yeah. Text messages are our best friend. Exactly. So I think that played into this coercive, like controlling situation because the history of their relationship was essentially this type of communication. So that sort of fed into like, she's like, they're constantly in communication. They're constantly talking about this. Like, yeah, when that's what you are focusing on 24 seven, that, that can get draining you know, on both sides, honestly. Mm-hmm. And and if it was, you know, affecting her to the point where she's thinking in her mind, God, I wish he would just kill himself or whatever mean shit she was probably thinking, just like, just leave him alone. He's better off without you. Yeah, and I think that's the, the frustrating part is like you said, you can, obviously text messages are just words, but in the things that you're saying, in those text messages, it sounds like you are like, you're just so tired of hearing about it. And nobody's forcing you to be with him. If you're tired of hearing about it, stop talking to him. You know, yeah, it's going to be hurtful and breakups suck and they're hard. But if you're that bothered by what he's saying to you, then stop talking to him. Exactly. So there are a couple cases that I kind of wanted to talk about. Um, These are the ones that the judge kind of relied on when he made his ruling. So the first two I'm going to talk about 
are a little bit different than Michelle's because they have defendants that were present at the time. So that's the first kind of, I don't want to even say first, that's the big difference is the physical Mm -hmm. presence. So in the first one, um, this is Commonwealth versus Atencio. The defendant was charged with manslaughter that came from a game of Russian roulette. He was playing with the victim. So I think we all know how Russian roulette Mm -hmm. is there's only one cartridge in the chamber the two the victim and Atencio were going back and forth trying to shoot um you know until the the bullet actually um that stresses me out to even think about and I'm just like what goes through someone's mind that they think this is going to be a so-called fun game what what I can I can understand it from like an adrenaline standpoint. Like I definitely get a Nerf gun. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like shit. That's yeah. So like I definitely get the adrenaline, like high that kind of thing. But at the yeah. same time, a gun to your head is a very oh. permanent situation. <laughs> yeah. And there's gonna be a point where the odds are not in your favor. So they were playing this game. Eventually, the victim ends up shooting himself in the head, which I think we all saw coming. Um, So according to the judge in that case, this whole Russian roulette game itself, there was an incredibly high degree of likelihood that somebody was going to end up injured in this game. I mean, that's... I feel like a given yeah. <laughs> when you're playing Russian roulette. Yeah, at the least injured badly. Right. So that that piece itself sort of satisfies the wanton or reckless conduct that For we talked sure. about early, earlier. The court sort of focused on that, again, Atencio, the defendant, was present at the time, but he was also engaged in playing the game. Mm, yeah. So it wasn't that... He was just watching the other guy yeah. do it. He was also like going back and forth. And so according to the judge in that case, he only would have been not guilty if he had abandoned or quit before wow. the shot was fired. So if he had decided wow. to walk away, leave this guy to his own devices. That's fascinating to me. I love this stuff, like learning about it, not the acts and all <laughs> that, but like, I like learning about the laws and the legal side of things because I never would have even thought about Russian roulette in that way. I would definitely think if two people are playing a dangerous game like that and one person shoots themselves, it's like, how am I responsible for that? To hear you explain this is just fascinating. I think you definitely hit it. Just that piece of like, yeah, we're both playing the game together, but he ultimately shot himself. It wasn't like I was holding the gun to his head because that's what was, um, going on is that they like I said they were taking turns back and forth it wasn't that they were like pointing the gun at each other right they were taking turns with the gun themselves pointing it at themselves and then if it didn't go off it went back to the other person yeah so I think you know if we're playing Russian roulette you and I and I'm holding the gun to you or vice versa that's pretty clear yeah yeah you know if the gun goes off one of us has committed murder at that point for sure but if we're going back and forth between each other and Mm -hmm. I end up shooting myself you know like you like you said I think a lot of people would think she shot herself like right yeah I was there but I didn't shoot the gun right she did So, yeah. So that was one case they relied on. This next one, my my blood 
was boiling. Uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> so this is Persampieri versus Commonwealth. And in this case, the defendant told his wife he wanted a divorce and she threatened to commit suicide. She'd threatened to commit suicide in the past. So he called her a chicken, told her she wouldn't do it. (sighs) And then he goaded her into grabbing a gun from the kitchen, which I don't know why it was in the kitchen, but it was in the kitchen. He helped her load the gun and he took the safety off before he gave her back the gun. So she takes the, it was a rifle and she puts the rifle between her legs with the muzzle on her forehead. Oh my God. Oh my God. She couldn't reach the trigger. So this man, this gem of society, tells her to take off her shoes. So as she's going to reach down to take off her shoes, the gun goes off. Oh, no. Like I said, my. Wow. Yeah, I, I can't even think straight. My heart is beating out of my chest right now. That is completely insane. Yeah, just this whole like. How how can you say you love someone and you do this? So, so what was his, do we know what his like defense was or? Basically that she shot herself. She committed suicide because he didn't fire the gun. She fired it when she was like reaching down to um, take off her shoes. So but still, you know, <laughs> I, even in this case, I, you know, I think you can clearly look at it like, okay, but you basically loaded it, the safety off of it, told her how to do it, placed it there. Like you were physically there, physically helping and telling her what that is insane. Yeah. That was like, for me, the most infuriating part was that one, he was only charged with manslaughter because he like, or in my, I obviously have no proof of this and he would probably deny this. So this is my pure opinion, Right. but the way everything happened, it seemed like he planned it to happen that way. Like he wanted her to shoot herself. Oh yeah. So it's like, I didn't pull the trigger, but she still did it. And that's what the outcome he wanted. Right. And so that was like the most infuriating part is like, you did all of this. Yeah. Straight up got got away with murder straight up. Yeah. Simply because you didn't actually have your hand (sighs) on the trigger. But the court did find him guilty of involuntary manslaughter. According to the court, his wanton and reckless conduct was giving a drunk and emotionally disturbed woman a loaded gun, which, yes. (laughs) Oh my God. I just don't understand how the charge is not more than that in some way. I don't know. Yeah, it it boggles my mind. And the, for me, in a lot of ways, this is not how it happened in Michelle's case, but I almost find a little bit more in like similarities between that case and Michelle's case. Yeah, for sure. Because for me, the only difference is the physicality. Yeah. Because otherwise I feel like she did everything like this husband did. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You know, she essentially gave him the loaded gun, the metaphorical loaded gun. Um, And I think if she had been there, maybe she would have pushed him in the truck probably. Oh my God. But I think it also like goes to show that there is something about 
all of that because up until the point that he gave his wife the gun he was still like goading her and like berating her to like do this do that like you're never gonna do it you always say you're gonna kill yourself and you never do Mm -hmm. like he still had that verbal encouragement too yeah on top of like the physical stuff that he did yeah and her being drunk you know, even, you know, I don't know if she had any mental illnesses, but just being drunk or under the influence of anything and just being told to do something and you're not thinking, you cannot think clearly. Yeah. I mean, you're drunk. Your husband just told you he wants a divorce. Mm-hmm. You're not in your right mind. No way. You should not have a gun. Mm-mm. So Ooh. the last case that I have in this kind of trio is the one that the judge relied on the most in his opinion. And that's because it is strictly verbal communication, like just words. Okay. So there was no physicality, no physical presence. So in that sense, it was the most like Michelle Carter's case. So in this case, the defendant and the victim were fellow inmates in neighboring cells in a prison. The, this is all like this is all worded so weird because they're they're inmates in the prison, but there's also like the fact that one of the inmates eventually becomes a victim. So it yeah. sounds weird when I'm saying it, but yeah, no, I t- totally I'm that totally makes sense. With you. Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. <laughs> um, so the victim had received a death sentence for the crime um, that he was, you know, sentenced to death for, and in the what it sounded like was that so they were in neighboring cells. So I'm picturing they were either like next to each other, or like across from each other, some way that they could communicate verbally, but obviously not physically. They weren't yeah. physically in the same cell. Because of this, they're, you know, able to communicate with each other. The defendant, Bowen, in this case, repeatedly and frequently advised the victim to kill himself to avoid execution. So basically, he's telling his neighboring cellmate, you should kill yourself and sort of like stick it to him because they won't be able to put you to death. Yeah. That was kind of what he was saying. So the victim actually hung himself the night before he was set to be executed. When does your free speech become a little bit more than that? Where, how is he being held responsible for his actions? Yeah. So in this case, um, this was actually decided like almost 200 years before Michelle Carter's case. So it's a very old case. This is the only case where a defendant was successfully convicted for encouraging a person to commit suicide through words alone. Wow. So in Bowen's case, the court found that he was the but for cause mm. of this victim committing suicide. So if he hadn't encouraged him to sort of, you know, stick it to the man and right. commit suicide before he was set to be executed, he wouldn't have done it is what they argued. Yeah. That may or may not be true. Um, you know, he could have decided on his own one day, like, hey, yeah. I'm going to stick it to him and I'm going to kill myself and they won't be able to put me to death. Um, but I think what it sounded like is that they had frequent conversations about this and like, he just was constantly like, yeah, you should really do this. Yeah. And you know, another thing, my mom's brother, he was in and out of prison his whole life. And when you're in prison, from what I understand, it's also, even if you don't have a mental illness, 
being in a prison, basically my uncle said he would have been better off dead than, than in there. So with kind of knowing the things that he has said, I can imagine someone knowing, okay, I'm going to be put to death for something. You're in a very vulnerable you know, not strong-minded position, I would think. And prison is just, man, it's lonely. It's, uh, you know, isolating. So someone that is being told to kill themselves, it's, yeah, it's, it's very much probably seems like a good idea to that person. Yeah. And given that the case, you know, is like 200 years old at this point, this was probably back in the time where there wasn't a significant amount of time between somebody being sentenced to death and then oh, actually yeah. being put to death. So he's not sort of stewing in his depression for a long time. Right. He's kind of like, he's already there, like you said, because he's been convicted and sentenced to death. Now it's just a matter of, you know, days or weeks, maybe. Yeah. It's not going to be a significant, significant right, amount right. of time before he's put to death. And so being in that mindset, I think I also, you know, my brother uh, served time as well. And he sort of talked about, you know, different periods of time that he would go through. And even just other people in the prison that had life sentences, because we don't have the death penalty anymore, but being faced with a life sentence and what that means to a person, I think having some kind of control over how you go out is incredibly important to those people. Mm -hmm. I agree. Going out on your own terms. It's like, that's the last thing you can literally control. Right. And so I think there was, it's weird because I didn't quite get the sense that there was anything like nefarious necessarily, like we see in Michelle's case. I think it really was more just like, you should stick it to the man and like, not give them the satisfaction of like being able to put you to death, which I kind of think, you know, really plays into somebody's psyche at that point. Like, yeah, he's right. Like I'm, I have this chance to do what I want to do, but there's still that kind of coercive, like, Hey, if you do it like this, like, yeah, that's true. It's yeah. That's like I said, I don't know this for sure, but that's definitely what I took from it is that it wasn't like a sinister you should kill yourself. Yeah. Kind Just of like, thing. come on, man, stick it to the man. You know, yeah. don't let them, don't let them, you know, tell you when you're going to die. Like take, take over your own life and do it on your terms. Kind of. Exactly. It's just that sort of like final piece of you being able to like close the chapter on your book, because you know that you're not going to get out of prison alive like you're leaving in a body bag or a casket but knowing that you made the choice to do it this way versus like them coming and you know putting a needle in your arm or whatever they did back in the day um there's there's something like freeing about that I feel like yeah and so I I definitely see why this case was the most discussed in the judge's opinion because obviously the words alone thing is right. really important but I think what it's missing there was more of a like sinister evil just manipulative like yeah I and so I mean it's like I kind of just mentioned there's for me it's not like what she did and the things that she said weren't to free him from you yeah. know the depression and the 
the mental health problems that he had, it was almost more to free her from him. Yes. Bingo. Bingo. So I have just one more piece. Okay. Um, and it's about Conrad's law. So this is legislation aimed at prosecuting coerced suicide, specifically in Massachusetts. Okay. Um, and so I had mentioned earlier at the time of Michelle's trial, they didn't have any assisted suicide, coerced, encouraged, nothing about suicide on the books. And there are actually like Massachusetts is actually in the minority because there are 42 other states that have laws like this. Um, his mom was the, the big driving force for this legislation. And it was first drafted in 2019 for kind of all the reasons that we talked about earlier. It really narrowly defined what coerced suicide is, which is obviously extremely important because there are certain things that like we don't want to encompass. This statute in particular was also making sure that there was an exception for assisted suicide. If you're a medical practitioner that's doing that, mm, yeah. um, you're not part of this. Yeah, that's law. important to make to make clear. Right. You know, that's a separate thing that's not that's not what we're trying to punish with this law, right. essentially. The perpetrator has to have knowledge of the other person's suicidal ideation. And with that, they sort of, they knowingly or intentionally encourage or enable this person to commit suicide. So what's really important with that is kind of what we talked about earlier with the bullying. They sort of have specific, because of the way they've sort of narrowly defined this, they have made it so that it doesn't apply to any unintentional effect of bullying or jokes. Their focus is on, you know, this person has suicidal ideation and knowing that that person has those thoughts, you intentionally encourage them or enable them to commit suicide, Yeah, which, you know, is exactly what Michelle did in this case. She knew his history of suicide attempts. She knew where his mental state was at the time and she encouraged and enabled him. You know, she's, um, I guess, at least from what it sounded like when you were reading the text messages, she's kind of okaying his yeah. like Google searches and like, oh yeah, this is good. Like you should get this. Yeah. Like not telling him, okay, maybe you shouldn't be looking this stuff up. Right. Like what all. the fuck are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that is really important. And I think it's a really good sort of narrow focus um, because like I said, it does sort of put out this bullying as like these unintentional effects. Like if you don't know that someone is suicidal and they commit suicide, your intention was not to get them to do that. Yeah. So it's a little bit different. Um, in this law, it would be punishable by up to five years in prison which I think is more along the lines of kind of what you were thinking yeah. she might receive to begin with. Why this sort of came about was one, Massachusetts didn't have a law on this issue. And two, if we sort of have our own law that's just focused on coercing or encouraging suicides, then maybe we get fewer legal appeals because we have something that's so narrowly focused that is very clear on like where we're, you know, yeah. defining this problem that, you know, it's going to be harder for people to appeal because because we, their excuse is gone now right it's like very limited to this specific thing one of the quotes i read was that they're not punishing words alone 
they're punishing words that recklessly cause someone else's death. And again, it's in the context of knowing that someone has suicidal ideation. Again, trying to focus on that. We're not as much as I would like to, and as much as I think a lot of people would like to, we're not trying to punish the unintentional effect that bullying and jokes might have, even though those can definitely be reckless and can lead to someone's death. It's that's a lot more of a gray area. Yeah, because it's like if the person who was bullying that other person knew for a fact that they would go and do something to themselves, would they stop if they knew? Right. Whereas in this case, if you know that that person is thinking about suicide and then you continue to do what you're doing, knowing that, then it's a little bit different story. For sure. So unfortunately, the bill stalled in the legislature in early 2020. It got refiled again last summer in June of 2021, but I wasn't able to find any information on what happened to the bill after that. I hate when that happens. (laughs) So I honestly have no idea like if it passed, if it's still like pending. It's so frustrating when you get down to that last thing you want to know and you cannot find it anywhere I have to think like obviously something happened to it like his mom has been such a champion of this law and has been like pushing and pushing for it there is no way in my mind that I think she just like dropped it I don't think so I'm sure there was probably something COVID related that you know COVID screwed up everything that (laughs) is very true I didn't even consider that that is true yeah so it's it's crazy to me that this all I mean, obviously he, he passed away in 2014, but the fact that like, she's only been out and like, has kind of gone through the legal process. Yeah. So recently. That's why I don't feel the time fit the crime in this case. I, I just, the more and more I think about it, I'm like, she should have gotten like the law Conrad's mom is is going for is like the five-year thing like that would have seemed decent to me I don't even think she sat and really reflected on any of this there's no way no and I I didn't really like watch anything for this um but just pictures I've seen it seemed like in a lot of other cases that I've seen where the focus is very much on woe is me, like look at what look at what's happening to me, like feel sorry for me because like this is happening to me. Yes. Uh, now I haven't watched anything on it since it was. I don't know if the whole trial aired on TV or if it was just clips that I saw. But you know, like Casey Anthony and Jody Arias, where they just at like oh poor pitiful me it's just so frustrating it is like it's when you have created the circumstances that exist in this case it's really hard to feel sorry for you yeah and they don't that's the thing they don't even think they've created this shitstorm. Mm-hmm. they're just mad because it's happening but they don't realize they created it Ugh. 
and some of the like pictures that I've seen and like I said the the air that I've gotten Mm -hmm. from her is never I'm sorry that he's gone and like I'm sad that this happened and like this is terrible that this happened and it's never any of that no it's like you and I are complete strangers like we don't have any connection to Conrad's family like we don't know them but I am like so sad that this happened to him right we have more feeling about this case than than Michelle his own girlfriend yeah that's honestly how I feel I feel like we are more angry and more sad and more heartbroken than she has ever been with this situation it also makes me wonder too how she would feel if the roles were reversed if he had done this to her and what her family would think Mm -hmm. Mm. yeah I there's so many (laughs) oh yeah there's so many ways you know this conversation could really go I definitely think um you know I might be in the minority and that's okay but I think in encouraging suicide or coercing suicide laws should be passed I think I am totally with that I think we're at a scary point right now in that I mean, you know this in things that like we post with like our one star reviews that we get. Yeah. People are so with their words when they're behind a computer. Oh, yeah. Behind a whatever, like behind a text, you can just like rage text whatever you fucking feel like. And, you know, people can use those apps to get uh, phone numbers that you don't know and they can harass you with these unknown numbers and you will never know who they are. I mean, these are the things that I think about that people get away with all the time. And you see these little kids that, man, they have no idea the life that's ahead of them and they just take their lives because of these words. And that's what I think is so important. Like, that's why I think these laws are important to have is because words can hurt people. Mm-hmm. Like, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never, whatever, is yeah, bullshit. Yeah, the bullshit, <laughs> yes. Because, again, like, this is nothing even, like, remotely close, but I know how bad I feel, like, when I read a one-star review yeah man that shit just ruins my whole day I'm just like really they thought this yeah (sighs) and like again it's nothing even like on the same level but just knowing that that makes me feel that type of way Mm -hmm. I could only imagine like if somebody had spoken to me the way Michelle spoke to Conrad 100 how that would make me feel And so there are consequences to the words that you say. It's not just your actions that hurt people. You know, people have feelings, you know, we're all human. We, you can try to pretend like things don't, you know, phase you. They just roll right off you. Uh But there's just no way for that to be true 100% of the time. No way. Praying on somebody that's already in like that dark place and pushing them over the edge. Yeah, you weren't there and you didn't physically like lock him into the car, but yeah. you might as well have. Yep. Yeah. This this whole conversation has definitely opened my eyes to just a whole new way of looking at this than I initially did. So, I mean, thank you for that. Thank you for explaining all of this and even going through the other cases. Like, it's just so interesting and I'm just such a nerd and I love learning. So... (laughs) 
No, I, I love that. That makes me so happy because that's exactly <laughs> how I am. Uh, I mean, that's part of what I love about what we do is yeah. just, I know we research some really dark and really sad stuff, but just kind of like looking at where the law comes from and like getting into that and sort of finding the good in what we like talk about. Like, yeah his mom petitioning to have the law changed so yeah. that he can protect future kids from having this happen to them future adults too but I yeah. think kids are especially vulnerable to something like this um so I'm so glad that you picked this one I mean there was just <laughs> so much to talk about yeah I know and honestly I this is one of those that I could talk about forever and I know I've made that obvious because <laughs> I've talked a lot but it's just sometimes certain cases really get you going and I don't know why some of them get to me more than others but just this one does and I was really excited to sit down and, and talk to you about it and learn about the legal side of it so you're awesome you're awesome oh, you. you're <laughs> awesome too I think the thing that is the most I guess maybe relatable for me is that you know I again I've never been in a place where I've like contemplated suicide or thought about suicide but just knowing like my own issues with depression and sort of like seeing myself in Conrad just that feeling of being in that place and having the person that supposedly like loves me and cares about me telling me to kill myself like there's just something that about that that just hurts so bad as somebody who like also has had mental health issues yeah. where I'm just like I I don't want anybody to ever do that to me I couldn't, I couldn't imagine somebody could be so cold. I think the judge definitely sort of hit it on the head when he said, you know, she was the butt for in his mm -hmm. death because he did exactly what he had done in the past. He started and then he stopped. Yeah. And he should have been allowed to stop. Yep and not complete the suicide like he has the right to commit suicide and he has the right not to you know again that that's everyone's own personal choice but she took that choice away from him by telling him to get back in the truck like she should have just let it be and been exactly. mad at him or whatever it was like oh you're not going to do it tomorrow whatever throw her little hissy fit I agree this is sad but like you said, you know, had this not happened, and that's why I kind of have the attitude of everything happens for a reason, no matter how bad it sucks. But like Conrad's mom making such a difference and such a change and pushing for this law, who knows when or if that ever would have happened without this happening, unfortunately. And I think we see that a lot in the true crime community so many of these parents use their pain for positivity you yeah. know Polly Class's dad created his own foundation Sarah Turney is just an amazing advocate for her sister and for other victims yes you know Eric is oh yeah amazing and incredible advocate for his brother and for other people you know in a similar situation yes. just using their pain for power and for positivity oh. That's I, so inspiring. And it's like, you know, I don't know if I was in their shoes, if I could be like that. And it's just so admirable to, to see them be so strong. Yeah. You took the words right out of my mouth. That is exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. It's just something no one should ever have to have the experience of, but they're absolutely amazing, wonderful people. 
for doing what they do. Yes, agreed. Well, that is all I have, Paige. Thank you for joining me on this journey. Well, thank you and Miss Winston for allowing me to come on and, you know, talk and ramble. And I know I'm no (laughs) professional, but I love talking about this stuff. So I'm I'm glad y'all let me come on. Yes, we are so happy to have you. You can always come back. Thank you. You have been approved by Winston. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I love her. I love that. uh, The The picture back there. Oh my gosh. I know I've seen it on Twitter, but to see it hanging up back there. I love it. Yes. And for all of you who don't know, um, the queen photo of Winston, Twitter decided that it should hang in my podcast studio. So that is where it's hanging. Oh, I didn't know where the, uh, where the vote went because I knew it was either what above her litter box (laughs) or, or there, right? Yes. So (laughs) you will be the first to see Uh, this is what's going in her poop palace. Oh, that's so cute. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So I love it. Yeah, I came across it on Etsy and I was like, oh my gosh, this is the best thing to put oh my gosh. in her poop palace. Yes. <laughs> oh my God, that's awesome. I need to make it like very, you know, cheerful in there. Yeah. Let her have a nice little cozy time when she's yes. in there. So I love it. She is so <laughs> spoiled and she knows it. It's like her sass is on another level. Those judgy eyes are. <laughs> just great I love it I love it so it's funny I you saw I posted on Twitter the other day about the bow ties so I had I had three that I put up there but I didn't tell anybody that I actually had like eight more coming (laughs) (laughs) so there's actually a lot to choose from I am so, you don't even know, I'm over the moon excited about this. Oh my gosh. Are you going to like put them all on her and let us see her in each one? Yes, we're going to start rotating them. Um, She's in her royal purple currently. Oh my God. Yes. And uh, she has, so I have to get some more like holiday themed ones, but she has one for pride that I'm so excited about. Um, I, I love pride. I, I can't yes. get enough of the gays. I'm sorry, but yes, <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm here with for the that. gay agenda. They can push whatever they want. Yes, me. ma'am. I am absolutely here for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you on that. I'm with you. But I want to get her, um, like a, I have one Halloween one, but since we love Halloween so much, I want to get her a couple the company that I normally get her bows from actually make like a little bloody Halloween one, oh which is God. also like perfect true crime. Yes. Oh, I'm so excited <laughs> already. <laughs> we'll, we'll put on a fashion show for everyone. Hell yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. The links for our social media pages are included in the show notes. You can find our discussion group on Facebook by searching for True Crime Cat Lawyer in the group section. And if you want more content, head over to Patreon to join one of our available tiers. You can get monthly mini and bonus episodes as well as early access to our main episodes. 
Finally, if you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at WinstonTheCatPDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.